Amen. First Samuel chapter one. First Samuel chapter one, continuing our studies in First Samuel here on teaching others also. Now we've been going through some introductions. We did a session of introduction. We did uh, verses one to eleven. Last time we looked at verses twelve to eighteen for the most part. And we're not trying to drag it out or anything. In fact, trying to expedite it. However, these passages are so full of foundation, foundational, not just truths, but application. And we've noticed so much by reading this about the Christian life now in, you know, 2022, and it's parallel to the worship of the Lord God in the Old Testament. It says that without faith, it's impossible to please God in Hebrews 11. That is in both Testaments. And in fact, in that chapter, the, the hall of faith, they might, they might call it, they, uh, it's all about the, those passages, Old Testament. And so you don't want to have one without the other. And you definitely don't want the Old Testament now, today, 2022, without the New Testament. You need both. And they're probably due to a lack of, we'll say, interest, perhaps, due to a lack of application, due to a lack of study, due to a lack of, honestly, just time and interest spent in the Word of God, both in church and in personal life for the average Christian, uh, there's the proportion of time spent on God is is much smaller today than it was even 100, 150 years ago. Now, the excuse for the child of God is there's just so much to do. Well, you choose to do that. Now, I'm a very active person. I, I'm, I make lists and prioritize daily, every single day, seven days a week. If I'm prioritizing a Sunday, Lord's Day, I prioritize it according to what it is. Uh, I'm a firm believer that he said, teach us to number our days. That means that we should look at life and have, a, have our days numbered. That's what a calendar is. Your monthly calendar is your days are numbered. And then your yearly calendar is your days are numbered and divided off into 12 sections. Now, what I'm saying has everything to do with 1 Samuel because what's happened today is the average believer wants a lot for a little. Now that might be okay if you're just one of these pure capitalists that wants to get as much as you can for as little as you invest or vice versa. And the world today thinks that the wise person is one who can get the most with the least effort, who can make the most money with the least effort or make the most money without, with, you know, and have it guaranteed, etc. And so the world at large has become turned, you might say, or twisted towards a lack of effort when it comes to being a Christian. The world at large today, and you, can, you, you can't blame it on, but you may attribute it to the things like, you know, media and streaming and all those sort of things. You see, there's something that God did when he made mankind, and all this fits with today's passage and picking it up in verse 19 of 1 Samuel 1, and it fits with it because you have to put yourself in a mindset that goes back to those days and work forward, <laughs> not stand where you're at and look backward and be like the evolutionist 
okay, or the uniformitarian that says all things have continued as they were from the beginning. That's not true. You see, you live in a day when the so-called advances are at least partially an enemy to your faith and to your Christian growth and understanding of God. You see, if you were to back off a little bit and just in your mind, think of it this way, not, not do it, not you know become a hermit or any of that kind of stuff, but if you backed off in your mind and said, okay, what if my, my life, my Christian walk, my uh, realization, they call it today, you know, my experience, what if it was directly connected to my daily activities, my consumption of the Word of God, my relationship with God, and not with all the mass communication that makes me think, uh, makes a person think that they are connected to 10 people or 20 or 40 or even hundreds. You see, from the beginning, God made us to live our life between Him and the people closest to us. That's what he created us for. In the day we live in, you have to make a greater effort. And it's going to apply right here to Hannah. Because you see, Hannah really wanted to bear fruit on behalf of her husband and have a son. And she wanted it for years and years. And, and she got to the point where she said, Lord, if you'll give me a son, I will give him back to you. And... Samuel, the prophet and the priest, <coughs> came along and they had their encounter and Samuel gave her a promise. And so he said in 1 Samuel 1.17, he said, Go in peace and the God of Israel grant thee thy petition that thou hast asked of him. And it's like somebody agreeing with you in prayer, only in this case with Samuel, he is a representative of the Lord, the way the Lord said it. And so it's an amen from heaven. And the Bible says, as we studied, that uh, she said, let thine handmaid find grace in thy sight. So the woman went her way. She did eat and her countenance was no more sad by faith. So she, they get back home. Uh, she has relations with El Elkanah. She conceives and she's going to bear a son. Now, in verse 19, they rose up in the morning early, worshiped before the Lord, returned and came to their house to Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah's wife, and the Lord remembered her. So, as I said, think in terms of the fact of what their life was like. They went back to the homestead. There is no blooming, you know, social media, none of this rubbish. And I do not hesitate to say rubbish. Her experience between her and God and her husband is right there. These other experiences that people are leaning on are actually pulling people apart who should be together. You know, they always talk about, you know, the empty nest syndrome and stuff and all this stuff happening in this Western world and in these countries. And it's because way back when God said, you need to keep the husband and wife relationship first, I will add children to you, but that's not who you love as your core, because you are, you are entrusted with them, you are a steward for them, and you're to launch them out, cast them out for God, as in sow them into the, the, the world. You, God has something for them to do, but your core is supposed to be the husband and the wife. 
And what happens is people allow their relationship to their children or their work or their hobby to become their focus. And then let's say the children, they go off to school somewhere, college, university, get their jobs, etc., get married. And now it's, quote, the empty nest. And they go, well, we found there was nothing between us. You hadn't cultivated it. Now, this applies directly to what this woman was able to do because she had her heart and her mind right with God and with her husband. And so it says in verse 19, the Lord remembered her. What a statement. What a wonderful thought that the Lord remembered her. Wherefore it came to pass, by the way, I pity the person who hasn't had a situation where they needed God to remember them when it came to a prayer request that was long-standing. I pity that. I, I think it's one of the greatest things on earth when you've got a one-year, a two-year, a five-year, a ten-year, and maybe even some still after ten years or twenty years not answered yet. That's what helps our relationship with God. And verse 20, wherefore it came to pass when the time was come about after Hannah had conceived that she bare a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I've asked him of the Lord. So now she has his son. God tells you what his name means. Now, <clears throat> one of the things to keep in mind is this. As a child of God, now I'm not talking about your natural thought, your un saved, unregenerate nature. Everybody has it, even if you're saved now. I'm not talking about that side of you. But if you're a born-again believer, and by the way, in the Old Testament, no, they didn't get to be a spirit-sealed born-again believer, but they practiced their faith in God, and they disciplined their heart and mind. So if they could do it, and now we have the Holy Spirit in us, how much more should we do that? And so she conceives, and she has her son. Now, Here's the thing to keep in mind about some of this thing. As we've gone through this up to now, we need to remind ourselves what all God's done. And it would be easy for her in, the, in this moment of fulfillment, this moment of jubilation, you might say, uh, <laughs> having received this thing from God, it would be really easy for her to forget her vow, or to adjust her vow, or to just second guess it, etc. So in verse 21, And the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer unto the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. So he would vow things to God. If you remember way over there in Genesis, Jacob came to a point where he said, Lord, if you'll prosper me, uh, the tenth of everything will be yours. And so he had a vow. And he's going to go and he's going to fulfill his vows. Now, Hannah, verse 22, went not up. Why? Did she not go up because she was afraid of her vow? Nope. Did she not go up because she was pulling back from her vow? Quite the contrary. Look. For she said unto her husband, I will not go up until the child be weaned, and then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and there abide forever. She said, I don't want to risk going up there with him 
bringing him back, going up there with him, bringing him back over several period. I don't want to do that and risk getting used to the idea and convincing myself that it's okay to do that. She was aware of this temptation to go back on her vow. Now, she is purposely going to make this a one-time thing. According to your Old Testament thing, those, those women were not required to do it the three times a year like the males were required to get you know counted and all that. Verse 23, Elkanah, her husband, said unto her, Do what seemeth thee good. Tarry until thou hast weaned him. Only the Lord establish his word. So the woman abode and gave her son suck until she weaned him. So as per Old Testament, as per Numbers chapter 30, etc., her husband confirms her vow. Now there's a practical lesson here about when we make promises to God or we make vows to ourselves. You say, what's a vow? It's when you determine to do something. It's when you promise yourself to do something. At the end of a year, you know, the beginning of the new year, people call it resolutions. I made a resolution. Well, that's not the same. A vow is stronger. A vow is what you exchange at marriage. Do you know, if, if people would look at those vows differently, if, for example, let's take the marriage ceremony. If instead of it centering on the bride and making it a time of indulgence, and a time of extreme, and a time of, oh, one more last, you know, expression of, of being single, etc. Instead of doing that, if you did it the Bible way, the whole focus would be different, and our vows would mean something. That doesn't mean that you can keep somebody from breaking their vows. You can't. That's a sad thing. It doesn't mean you can't, that, that by you doing right, you, the other person will absolutely do right. It, it doesn't. But here, what he says is, do what seemeth thee good, tarry until thou wean him, only the Lord establish his word. Okay? So, he's saying if this thing's between you and God, then follow through on it. So I said that about him establishing her vow because sometimes, sometimes, you're going to want to do something or you might determine in your heart or purpose in your heart, as it says in First Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, okay? He says for them to, that according as they purposed in the heart, let them lay aside each week towards an offering for the poor saints at Jerusalem. And those two passages through the years have become classical missions giving passages that is setting aside to give for a purpose in the work of God. In her case, her mind is made up. She doesn't want to give in to self and tempt herself needlessly. So she determines what I'm going to do is I'm going to stay here. I'm not going to get in the habit of going to Jerusalem and coming back with him and going and coming back. I'm not going to build that. Now let me try to say this, and, and I'm saying it with compassion. I'm saying it having understood that there are so many things that go with, with the passing over of a loved one from my baby brother who went at 15 to, you know, all up through the family, I understand the passing over of loved ones that you love. I'm not talking about people you didn't get along with or hated or, or cross with all the time or were dissociated from. I'm talking about people that really matter. There is a, an affinity that has come into Christianity. It's always been there. I get that. 
but it's very prevalent. I'm speaking right now, for example, in the United States of America. There's a culture here that has taken family, physical family, and made it a god, an idol, has made it a stumbling block to a Christian testimony. And I say that because there are young people today, young people 20s and 30s, some even in their 40s now, who did not answer the call of God because of family, because of, you know, parents and grandparents and the grandparents towards the grandchildren and the money and the this and the land and the property. And they have killed a whole generation of missions off. There's still missions going on. I know that. But not as it was before and not with the same fervor and frequency that it was before. Those things are connected to this kind of passage because this dear woman, Hannah, is fulfilling a vow she made to God and then God blessed and answered and she's going to go through with it. Now, let me say this to you. And it doesn't matter if your children are full grown already. If they're full grown, you should, st should still do this, okay? And if they're not, you especially should. And if you have, don't have yours yet, when they come along, you should. Those children, each and every one individually, should be given to God for God to do with as he pleases and not to become a substitute for the love of God Almighty and your spouse. This is very important. <clears throat> Do I have any hopes of something changing on a national, worldwide, national or worldwide level? No, of course not. But each and every individual has a chance to do that in themselves. Our relationship to each other and, and family-wise, the Lord Jesus Christ told us to beware of it. Do I believe in family? Absolutely. Is it a blessing? Absolutely. But we are to rear children for the purpose of God using them to his glory and them living for his glory. And that cannot happen if at the heart of our relationship to them is self. If we spoil them, if we do the things that do not make for a good, solid, healthy foundation for loving and serving the Lord Jesus Christ. So she makes up her mind here. Okay? Now, in verse 24, and when, there's a paragraph mark there in my uh, copy of my King James Bible, my Oxford interleaved Bible. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bullocks and one ephah of flour, a bottle of wine, and brought him unto the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Now, <clears throat> some people think that, you know, it's been said and writers have written, and by the way, Read what you write and commentary stuff. Just read it with it. Take it with a grain of salt. Instead of trying to nail it down and say, well, they weaned him at three years old and they did this and that. Understand he warned against, Paul warned Timothy against endless genealogies. Trying to figure out every little timeline. It doesn't work. It could be that it is three years because she's bringing three, you know, the three bullocks and keeping with, with the offerings. Now, the point is when she goes, some time has passed between some of these paragraph marks. There's a paragraph mark in verse 19. They come back, the baby's born, etc. Then there's a paragraph mark in verse 24. Now, were there paragraph marks when your Bible were first penned out by hand? Nope. Were there necessarily paragraph marks when it was very first printed, 
your, your authorized version, your King James Version? Nope. God providentially put them in there. Uh, there weren't the book, chapter, and verse markings as we know them. God providentially put them in there so that we could locate stuff. Listen, back when it was called a book, it was, it was technically what you might call a scroll, but God called it a book. The book is not how it's bound or the pages. It's a term that God gave in our English language for what we have. We have a book. We have a book made up of books. So imagine for you to find a verse here and there, you had to roll, go through that scroll. You know what it would require, my dear friend? It would require that you learn the words of God and their order and how to find them. I understand you've got, for years, you know, in print, you had the Strong's Concordance. And then, of course, everyone thought they were a linguist because they could go to the back and look up some Greek word and Hebrew word. And you had the Cruden's Concordance and you had Young's Concordance. Now you've got all this digital stuff and people sit there and they flip through it digitally and find a verse. You're not learning your Bible. You say, well, you just don't know how to use this stuff. I had just yesterday, I had to go help somebody find a bunch of digital files from 10 years ago. I know what I'm doing that way. But I know this, having done all of it, there is no replacement for me having this, this, uh, copy of my Bible in front of me and years and years and years of handwritten notes in the margins and on the, on the extra pages that are in it because then it sticks in your mind. They have proven that taking notes by hand helps your mind process it almost double what it does if you sit there with a little laptop or a pad and type out the notes while the person's lecturing. They've proven it. They've demonstrated it. Somehow God made us that way, that it goes into the brain, the hear, goes to the ears, the brain, processes, goes through the muscle. Uh, it takes to write it out. Your eyes see it written. And, and I'm telling you, it'll stick, 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 stick. Now, by the way, I, you, I'll prove it to you. Why don't you take three years? It'll take you three years to do this. You're not going to, but if, if you love God, you might try it. And instead of reading all that digital rubbish, read your Bible. You know what you'll start knowing? You'll be able to remember where it's at on the page even. You'll remember to go back to it. And you'll have a verse here and you'll be able to pick up three, four, five, six verses and, and put them together and you'll never do that with that digital. You know why? Because that's not how God started it or made it. See, it's not a matter of old-fashioned, fuddy-duddy. No, you're lazy. So, so I ain't listening anymore. Well, if that makes you not listen, praise the Lord. So now, hear me out here, Okay. She's going to bring this child, and she does. In verse 25, they slew a bullock and brought the child to Eli. So we've mentioned Eli before, and we know we're going to hear about his boys, and we know he's going to pass off the scene. And it's even going to get to the point where God gives Samuel a tough, hard message for Eli, and Eli teaches him to love God so much that he says, put it on me, boy. People grossly, grossly underestimate the influence that old Samuel had on Eli, on, uh, Eli had on Samuel. So they brought him to Eli and she said, verse 26, this is, this is really cool. She said, oh my Lord. Now, that's a small L there. It's like saying, sir. It's a term of respect. It's a term of address. Do you know what's happened in society today? Irreverence. 
there was a shoe company and they got into clothing and all that. They're world, world famous, billions of dollars. Their in-house marketing motto was, probably still is, but I, I heard it from the guy's own mouth. Their in-house marketing slogan was irreverence justified. Irreverence justified. Do you get this? The just do it, that was that was the result of irreverence justified. You shouldn't ever just do it. You better make sure it's what God wants. You better make sure you're relying on God to do it or you get no credit for it in heaven. You see how easy it is to bring the flesh and the devil into something? That was the devil's motto. I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. I will, I will, I will. Just do it. Irreverence justified. You say, why does it matter? Now watch. She said, oh my Lord. Now he'd given her a hard time the last time she saw him. She doesn't even bring that up. She said, as thy soul liveth, my Lord, I am the woman that stood by thee here praying unto the Lord. This is at least four years ago. She goes home. She conceives. She carries the baby. He's at least three years old. This is at least four years. And Eli has been trying to keep his head above water and deal with his sons at the tabernacle. It's at least four years ago. Now to her, it was as if it was yesterday. And let me say this about this time thing. Time tests our resolve. Time tests our resolve. Now for some people, the time period from today and tomorrow morning is a test. <laughs> I'm, I'm forever reminded of a fellow said, do you realize that there are millions of pairs of running shoes that have been worn once or twice that are under somebody's bed or in their bottom of their closet that they bought to take up jogging and they either jog too much the first day or second day or it hurt too much to try it the third day. So there are millions of pairs that are hard, that are barely, barely been put on and used sitting around this world. And I thought that's because time tests our resolve. You know, when you work out or exercise, uh, when you're younger, in your 20s, 30s, maybe even 40s, they always talk about the third day, 72 hours. That's when you, the soreness is the worst. As you get older, that time frame changes. <laughs> and your recovery time changes, you know, for exercising. Time tests our resolve. And so she says, I was here in verse 27, for this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition, which I asked of him. Now that is such a simple statement, but think about what it is. It's a miracle. She could not conceive. And so she says, for this child I prayed, and the Lord hath given me my petition. Which I mean, there's such, a, such in there. And listen, today, think about what God's done. I mean, you really should. Count your many blessings and name them one by one, and it will surprise you what the Lord hath done. Verse, 30, verse 28, Therefore also I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, someone says, Oh, see, she just lending him. It's just, you know, take him for the day. No. Now, here's where I'm going to tell you you need to learn your Bible. I will never, ever apologize when I get to heaven. The one, one of the things I'll never have to apologize 
is that I constantly told people to read their Bible. I challenged them to get to know their Bible. And the reason I'll never have to apologize for that is we're supposed to live, not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth out of the mouth of God. Write this verse down, Proverbs 19, verse 17. Proverbs 19, 17. Let the Bible define the Bible whenever possible. This is why, whether you like it or not, this old King James Bible, even the words match with the words. You won't find these kind of witnesses in other places. And the reason you won't is because they haven't paid any real attention to the words. They, are, they care about thoughts. Uh, there's no continuity to it. Proverbs 19 and verse 17. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord. And that which he hath given him, will he pay him again? Okay? When you and I give to someone who can't give back to us, someone who's truly poor, and by the way, the poor are not always poor because they're lazy or slothful, and you better watch yourself, friend, because there but by the grace of God go you and me. Any one of us could end up homeless and desperate in a 24-hour period if certain things happen to us. He that hath pity upon the poor lendeth unto the Lord. You're giving it to God. Ready? That which he hath given him, will he pay him again? She's going to lend this boy to God for his life, his lifetime, his entire lifetime. The safest thing you could do with your children is to give them to God and keep your hands off them. The, the most wonderful gift you could give to your grandchildren is keep your hands and your selfishness off them. They're not there to make you feel good. They're not there for you to spoil. They are not there for you to teach them to be self-centered. They're not. Just speaking with somebody yesterday about how people, they've only got the one little boy and the people all around him, he's the only grandchild, so to speak, or close to their them, and people that are family and friends just constantly, they're spoiling him rotten. And it's going to backfire on them. Because that isn't how God made life to be. You say, well, if I can do it, I ought to do it. No, the power to do something is not the right to do it. That's another whole lesson. I want to close, though, by pointing this out, okay? A child can worship God if you'll help them to. As long as he liveth, he shall be lent to the Lord, and he worshiped the Lord there. Now, the he can be Samuel. It can be. The he can also be Eli. I get it. It could be either one of them. Because she's talking to Eli, okay? And so she says to him, uh, when she begins to talk to him, she said, Oh, my Lord, verse 26. My Lord, verse 26, okay? And it says he worshiped the Lord there. So Eli could be praising God because God's provided him someone to take over this priesthood because the boys are wicked. It can also be Samuel. It can be both. We come to find out that Samuel does worship God at a very young age. Now, I'm going to say this. My time, basic, a lot of time is up, but let me say this. Please, listen. Please, 
listen. You are hurting. You are hindering. You're helping the devil. When you sell young people short and think that they have to have entertainment and sports and activity and excitement and rah, 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 yeah, woo, yeah, hoo, wow, yeah. They're the same as the children were 2,000 years ago or longer back. They're the same as Samuel was. They're the same persons. It may be a greater trial for them because some of their friends are going to be so carnal and they're going to be playing ball when they ought to be in church. They're going to be doing this and that. They're going to be running around as early teenagers when people didn't used to get up that kind of stuff that are late teens or 20s. They'll have to, you know, forego that, make their own decisions. But you are selling them short. If you're, any kind, if you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a youth worker, you are selling them short when you do not provide them with the Bible and teaching and prayer and fellowship around God. When you change your youth ministry to the culture around you, you are hurting, you are hindering, you're helping the devil, you're hurting and hindering the child and helping the devil, you are hurting the work of God. I know how to get along with young people. Look, I'm 67, but I know how to get out there and shoot ball with them and do stuff. That's all fine. But if a person's saved, you take that 12, 13, 14-year-old young man, young woman, boy and girl that are saved, the new nature in them wants the same thing that Samuel wanted. He wanted God because he was taught to love and want God. And you cannot crowd that out God with all those activities and get away with it. If your goal is to reach the maximum number of young people, then you are going to reach the minimum or no spiritually minded young people. And you're going to run God out of them and feed them the world. See, that's not the old time, old time, old time. No, it's Bible. It's New Testament Christianity. It's Old Testament Christianity. Gone a little bit over on this one. But this is such a powerful passage and I pray you'll read it again. I pray you'll read on ahead a few chapters in time or read the whole book. Can't, won't take you that very long. What if you gave God, and I'm going to close with this. What if you gave God 15 minutes a day of your time to read the Bible? You set a timer and said, I will read the Bible in print, using your hands to turn the pages 15 minutes per day. Do you know that that's over 90 hours a year? So you'd be giving God 90 hours a year if you'd give him 15 minutes a day. Father, I pray you take these thoughts. God, thank you so much for what's in this book. I pray you'd use them now in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.